Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Welcome to the Siren Coffee and Science. I'm Reggie Williams, and I'm the Vice President of International Health Policy and Practice Innovations at the Commonwealth Fund. Today's conversation continues to explore topics related to assistance. As a reminder, this refers to healthcare sector activities that aim to reduce social risk by providing or linking patients to relevant social services. I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to speak with Dr. Matt Pantel. He is a pediatric hospitalist, assistant professor at UCSF, a siren researcher, and in his spare time, he runs a tattoo removal clinic. Matt and I will talk about what we have learned about approaches in the U.S. and abroad to addressing social isolation. We at the Commonwealth Fund focus on loneliness and social isolation because we know that COVID-19 has exacerbated a global epidemic of social isolation and loneliness. It is both deadly and costly in its own right. Countries from around the world have lessons to share on how to generate social connections and reduce loneliness in people's everyday lives. So Matt, my first question is a basic one. Almost everyone is familiar with what it's like to be lonely, but let's start by explaining by what we mean when we actually say social isolation and loneliness. Great question, Reggie. Although the terms social isolation and loneliness are used interchangeably sometimes, they actually represent two distinct concepts, so they do overlap somewhat. Social isolation is conceptualized as an objective lack of social contact with others, such as absence of a live-in partner or limited contact with others talking on the phone, limited contact seeing them, not participating in groups. So that's more of the objective measure, whereas loneliness is conceptualized as a, a subjective experience and refers to the perception of social isolation or feeling being lonely. So you could be socially isolated and not feel lonely, or you could feel lonely even amidst having lots of people coming to talk to you and living with a lot of different people. So although they're overlapping, they don't necessarily always come together. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So why all this talk and conversation around social isolation and loneliness? How does it actually impact health? At least in terms of the academic literature, for you know, over 100 years now, people have been noticing these relationships between social isolation, loneliness, and health. And uh, French sociologist Emile Durkheim, people always talk about in terms of social isolation research, who described in his book Suicide, and published in 1897, talking about the increased risk of suicide among those that were more socially disconnected. And especially in the last 30 to 40 years, there's been a lot of studies by health researchers and epidemiologists looking at relationships between social isolation, loneliness, and health outcomes. And a lot of studies have consistently, time after time, shown that people who are more socially isolated have higher risks of things like mortality. Similarly, those who are lonely have higher mortality risks. Other things that they've been associated with include increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of cognitive decline earlier and dementia increased depression and anxiety. And so there's a lot of different health outcomes that have been studied in relationship to social isolation and loneliness. 
Now they're actually doing even more studies about some of the mechanisms that might be driving this. There are people that have talked about the stress buffering hypothesis. This is a house, Cohen and Wills, they, they've all talked about this, whereby we know that stress is a risk factor for a lot of health outcomes. And then if you have social support, maybe you can buffer that stress and so therefore prevent you from having some of those worse health outcomes. And then others are looking at biological markers like CRP and markers of inflammation. Ford, it was about 2006, showed that actually those who were more socially isolated at higher levels of CRP may be indicating that maybe there's some inflammatory pathways that it could be related to it. So there's a lot going on looking at health outcomes and, mm -hmm. and mechanisms at this time. If I understand you correctly, social isolation hurts both your heart and your head. And it can impact you in a wide variety of ways. So why do you think there is so much conversation right now about these concepts of social isolation and loneliness? Another great question, one I could definitely speak to having experienced it during this pandemic. Before the pandemic, you know, there was a growing interest in social isolation and loneliness research, at least in, uh, you know, the health field where, where I'm practicing. But I think with the onset of the pandemic and the acute um, social distancing that, that happened, which we, some of us in the social isolation world like to call it physical distancing because we encourage people to stay <laughs> social over the phone and other, other methods. When that happened, almost everybody experienced more social isolation than before and then, you know, associated increases in loneliness than before. So I think, you know, a lot of people for the first time in a long time had this very acute decrease in social interactions. It's on a lot of people's minds, not, not just in you know, the health sector, but many sectors as we all sort of experienced this. Some of the work that we were doing on this that we're very grateful to the Commonwealth Fund for funding, you know, when we were talking about researchers and implementers in the field that were implementing social isolation interventions, they were saying one thing the pandemic has done is really increase people's interest in our work because they get it now. They're experiencing it so they see mm -hmm. why we find this important. The pandemic has just heightened our appreciation of, of what social isolation can do. The pandemic has really changed what people's concept of loneliness and social isolation with this physical distancing, as you say. And, uh, you know, I'm happy because I've actually been able to connect with my family a little bit more often. On Friday nights, we've started a family Zoom that has been a way for us to stay connected and celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and a wide variety of different things. I guess, what advice would you give to the parents of children or adults caring for an aging parent to address some of this form of isolation we're feeling during the pandemic. An example of that is exactly what you just explained. Stay socially connected, even if you can't. In this country and in countries around the world, we're in different stages of relaxing, physical distancing, or keeping it in place. As soon as your local and national standards dictate that it's okay to be socially active, be in a park or be somewhere even side eventually, I think getting back to that type of connection that you enjoyed before is important. But in the meantime, like you said, trying to adapt with whether it's Zoom or those who don't have Zoom, whether it's having phone calls or even socially distanced checks on people who might not have phones or or Zoom, having people knock mm -hmm. on the door and staying back, keeping up that interaction, especially those that are, are more vulnerable to isolation at, at this time is really important. Parents of kids, you know, this has been something that a lot of parents that I've talked to have worried about in the last years, you know, are my kids there? I can see the changes in, in, you know, their socialization. They haven't been seeing their friends. I can see it manifesting in their behavior. So again, you know, as soon as those restrictions are lifted, I get back to that social interaction. And in the meantime, you know, having calls, having Zoom, if you can, 
having FaceTime, you know, try to just do that. It's not going to be the same, but you can't, like you said, a lot of people have actually adapted to, you know, now we have family Zooms. We never would have done that before. You know, I know Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my friends are doing that. I've done that with my family. And so, you know, before when we wouldn't have everybody together for the holidays, now it's sort of standard. We, we get everybody together by Zoom that can't be together. So, you know, looking for ways to adapt and make up that lack of in-person connection can be supplemented by the, the methods you were talking about. Explaining the difference between objective social isolation versus subjective social isolation. Is loneliness the same thing as subjective isolation? The subjective experience is some people might say that they feel socially isolated. And then when you ask them, are you talking to people every day? Do you live with other people? Do you participate in sort of social groups? They might answer, you know, yes to those concrete things. So on paper, they actually have evidence of social connection or social ties, talking to people. As researchers, we tend to quantify this all the time. So it's like, do you live with a partner? Do you participate in groups? Do you talk on the phone at least three times? You know, someone might say that, but say that they feel socially isolated or say that they feel lonely. And that's really more of the subjective experience. And I I would say that someone saying that they feel socially isolated, even in the the setting of having sort of evidence of talking to other people and living with a partner, I would say, even though they're saying, I feel socially isolated, I would call that loneliness because it's sort of the subjective perception of it in the Mm -hmm. setting of actually having a lot of social interactions. I mean, how do you think stress impacts feelings of of loneliness and, and social isolation? How is that uh, impacting people's health and uh, their mental health? Certainly, they they can feed each other. And being socially isolated and stressed, you know, you're talking about sort of cumulative effects there that can lead to worse health. Or studies have shown that the more social adversity you're facing, stress, social isolation can be associated with worse health outcomes. So I'd say that they can exacerbate each other. I think having social support, which is the opposite of social isolation, you're having connections, you're feeling supported, that can also buffer stress. So a lot of people, if they're experiencing stress in one part of their life, do actually seek then social connections to then buffer that and actually try to combat some of those ill effects that stress may cause in terms of mm-hmm. uh, your health. That makes a lot of sense. So let's, let's get back to talking about the research and some real world examples about the effective ways to combat loneliness and social isolation. Is this really all about just picking up the phone and calling someone? I see a lot of innovations in digital health, and I hear talk of chats and bots and things like that helping people. You talk a little bit about some of the variety of ways in which we're seeing social isolation and loneliness being addressed. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot going on in this space at this time, and really that's been going on in the last year now, especially in the setting of the pandemic and people really trying to innovate. And there's been a lot of meta-analyses of interventions that have been implemented. There's no silver bullet, but a lot of studies have shown that, yes, having certain types of structured support groups or certain individual interventions where you're calling people or visiting people, they can lead to reduced loneliness and social isolation. And studies have shown that Sometimes pairing these with activities, like maybe you're having a physical activity intervention, and that's also with this group exercise intervention, leading to reduced social isolation and loneliness. I'd say in general, they're categorized as group-based interventions. You have individual interventions where you're targeting certain people. There's a lot of innovative, uh, what we call like assistive robots, where you're talking to them or providing social interaction with them, and then they're giving biofeedback, or even like you said, bots, things that you're texting and the texting back as a social you know, interaction. So there's a lot going on in this space. And 
while a lot of these studies have shown effects in terms of reducing social isolation, reducing loneliness, and even improving health and well-being, there are a number that have also haven't shown strong effects or have been too small in terms of sample size to give us the exact results. So I'd say one of the things that the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, they came out with a report last year talking about addressing social isolation and loneliness in healthcare settings. It was focused on older adults, but I think this applies to everybody, is that we do need more research on this. But I would also say that we don't necessarily need to search for a silver bullet. So, you know, what works for somebody might not work for others. And that we've shown that in certain populations, some interventions work, for other populations, they don't. So I, I think I would encourage us, you know, going forward as a field to think about, you know, maybe we don't need one intervention that is sort of um, uh, addressing everyone's social isolation and loneliness issues, but maybe we just need to help figure out what is the root of that and what's the best intervention to, to give to that person, a precision medicine approach. I also use, I'll just briefly say the example of, you know, I hate to over-medicalize, but, you know, diagnosing the cause of social isolation and loneliness in each person, mm -hmm. I think is important because if somebody is socially isolated because they actually don't have access to transportation, but it's easy for them to socialize if they can just get there, then we're talking about transportation vouchers. But if you're talking mm -hmm. about someone who actually feels social anxiety and needs to develop skills related to that and actually enjoys connections, but yet just has trouble initiating, maybe you're talking about some of these group-based interventions that actually work on those skills. Someone's socially isolated because they can't hear very well. And so the phone doesn't work. And when they're in public in groups, they can't hear because of the noise. Then we're talking about hearing aids. So it's diagnosing the cause, I think, mm -hmm. is really important to select the most effective intervention. Seems to me that there a wide variety of different types of solutions that could help meet people's needs here. And so if you think about the traditional stakeholders within healthcare, what role do you think primary healthcare could play in doing some of this screening and connecting people to services? We've been thinking about a lot recently at Siren. The healthcare system does have a role to play. And you know, I'd highlight Dr. Liz Tung actually led a study with SIREN researchers looking at three primary care clinics and then asking people about social isolation and addressing it in the clinics. She and the team found is that about 87% of patients were not asked about social isolation in the last year, despite about 94% reporting that they weren't uncomfortable being asked. One of the barriers, I think, to bring this up is clinicians saying, oh, we don't know if this is the appropriate setting, but actually it seems that patients are okay talking about it. The session is focusing on assistance, but part of the National Academy's framework talks about adjustment. If I know that as a clinician that one of my patients is socially isolated or lonely, I might take a different approach. If they need to lose weight, I might actually say, hey, you should join this exercise group and that'll actually help with your social isolation. And then in terms of assistance, I do talk to a lot of clinicians that say, well, then what do I do about it? But you know, there are programs locally and nationally that deal with addressing social isolation and loneliness. Other countries have really shown us great examples of this. The UK in particular, but also in other places in Europe, do something called social prescribing, whereby they actually screen for and assess social determinants of health, including social isolation. And then with someone called a link worker, they'll help pair them with interventions in their local community to address their social isolation and loneliness. So taking into account innovations like that and trying to apply them here, I think that's a real place that we could try to replicate. Really interesting point. And you, and you mentioned a number of international models and approaches. And it strikes me that mobilizing volunteers, engaging uh, community health workers, social workers 
are kind of common features of programs that we've seen in other countries. Are there other learnings and features that you think we could import to the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. I think it was really such a pleasure talking to people all around the world about this. One thing that we heard pretty consistently, no matter who we talked to, is just that this is cross-sectoral issue. It shouldn't be siloed to really make an impact. So, you know, I know, again, we're sort of focused in this discussion. Certainly, my work has been focused on social isolation in the context of healthcare settings, but really social isolation and loneliness is not just related to health, it's related to all sorts of aspects of life. And I think the UK and actually just, I think it was two months ago, Japan, uh, now both have ministers of loneliness within their government and their jobs are actually to coordinate and distribute resources to address loneliness in their countries. But it's not within the Department of Health or the analogous, it's actually across sectoral. So I think that type of approach is really helpful. Another example of that cross-sectoral thinking is using existing infrastructures. So we talk to people in different countries where they talk about how they've merged this type of work in terms of social isolation, loneliness, and health by actually integrating it with other initiatives going on. So for example, there is there was something called Colin Check. Again, this was in the UK. What they did is had people delivering mail were essentially asking, uh, postal workers were asking people who were isolated, are you okay? Do you need help getting medications? And essentially filled that gap of social isolation, also help to address their social needs. If they said, yes, I need help with this, then they would give that referral to the appropriate agency. And so that was sort of already an existing infrastructure. Another example, we were talking with a group in Norway at Comp that they have this device that they created that's really easy to use for those who don't really feel that comfortable with technology. It's like a screen that you install once where they live. It has just a dial to turn on and off. And then what happens is then everybody, all of their friends and family can sign up if they're more savvy in their iPads and their iPhones or whatever they have. And they can just call into that anytime. And the user just receives the call. It picks up. They don't have to do anything. And so it's really easy for someone who's not used to using mobile devices to use. And so that, even though it was sort of implemented as something for individuals, what they found is that there were municipalities that were interested in installing that in their local districts to not only combat loneliness, but also then they used it as a way for healthcare workers to check up on them and say, hey, did you check your medicine? And then, you know, their family could call in, they'd feel less lonely, but also you know, healthcare workers could say, it's Monday, you should take this, it's Friday, how are you doing? A lot of stuff we heard was if you look across sectors, you can find really interesting solutions and build on existing infrastructure. It strikes me that there are a wide variety of approaches that are effective here and seems to be a, a large focus on public policy, creating the opportunity and way for there to be more focus, more interventions to help meet people's needs. And so I kind of think about the times that we're living here in the United States, and there have been a number of monumental policy proposals from the Biden-Harris administration focused on social policy and improving life for Americans. If you're putting your public policy hat on, what would you like to see focused on combating social isolation and loneliness? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, first of all, I think what will be really important as we develop these policies is to really go to communities where we're targeting these interventions and, and working with them and asking what they think they need and, and what they think will work. That was another thing we learned from everybody we talked to is from the get-go, 
involving both your targeted users for the intervention, but also community-based organizations that know their communities well, you know, working with them from the get-go to figure out the best way to develop and implement interventions, super important. That being said, other, other things I think are investing in not just the figuring out the evidence base for which interventions work, also more investment in implementation science. Like I was saying before, there's not really a silver bullet, but my thoughts are, you know, if we if we figure out the sort of um, the communal elements of all interventions, which is identifying your target population, then linking it with this list of many interventions, one that might work better for this population than others. What are those common elements and what's the best way to choose from a menu of interventions to then really address and be most effective for that population? Some of the stuff we heard from when we were interviewing people from around the world is there's a lot of investments in research on individual interventions, but not on the implementation side. How do we do this and figure out the best ways to take what we've learned here and apply it in a different place and study sort of the rollout. You know, I'd also advocate for investment in that. Just thinking about putting a social isolation and loneliness lens on existing policies in general. Like I said, this crosses so many sectors in education and health and transportation. And again, these are things that if you just said, hey, as we're doing this policy or initiative, could we put our social isolation and loneliness hat on? Is there a way to at the same time increase social connection, decrease loneliness, even though that's not the primary work of this bill or this proposal, is there something we can also add to it that it incorporates addressing social isolation and loneliness? So I'd say, you know, obviously expanding the research base and more funding to beef up sort of implementation strategies, but also just putting that lens on all the policies that are being developed. That makes a lot of sense. Talk about the different concepts of social isolation that may exist in urban settings versus suburban or even rural settings. Could you help people understand, again, what social isolation and loneliness may mean in in different contexts? I think specifically with urban and rural, you know, a lot of times uh, in rural settings, we talk about social isolation being maybe lack of ease in terms of, of actually being able to go and see people, that type of context. So a lot of times people have talked about in very rural settings, it can be Again, some of our implementers we interviewed said the tough thing about social isolation interventions is sometimes the reason that that they're socially isolated is the is the reason that they can't then participate in an intervention to end social isolation. If you live in a rural area where there's not a bus line to then get you somewhere and you don't have a car, it's going to lead to social isolation. Also prevent you from getting some of these in-person interventions. And in urban settings, really across both. The objective social isolation would be not being able to be in touch with people or see people. But for either urban or rural settings, we've talked about, you know, social support and social connection can be as simple as picking up the phone or a Zoom call. It doesn't necessarily mean in-person interaction. So that concept crosses both urban and, and rural settings. And similarly for loneliness, you could be living alone in a rural setting, as an example, and you could be socially isolated, not live with anybody not have a lot of contact, but you actually might not feel lonely. So it's just the main take home, I think, between social isolation and loneliness is, again, you could have one without the other because one is sort of the objective. Do you see people? Do you live with someone? And the other is, does this bother you? Do you feel distress about not having this contact? Are you lonely? Hope that helps to clarify a bit. One final question that I'd love to ask you, Matt. Where should people go to find more information about social isolation and loneliness? how they can detect or see 
and help a loved one or where they could find potential solutions and sources and resources. There are more and more local interventions springing up in hotlines and resource centers. In the absence of that, there are some national resources you can go to. For example, there's a national friendship line, which is actually run by the Institute on Aging, which serves as both a crisis intervention hotline and a warm line for non-emergency emotional support calls. This is for adults ages 60 and older, but that is something if you know someone in that age group that you can call 1-800-971-0016. I can also say briefly, even though social isolation and loneliness, they're not synonymous with sort of having mental health crises or anxiety, since they are associated with that, there are national resources like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255, and the National Alliance on Mental Illness Helpline, which is 1-800-950-6264. And these are things you can call if you, or tell someone to call if you think that they're having a mental health crisis. Again, not synonymous, but a lot of people ask about that because social isolation and loneliness associated with mental health symptoms sometimes. Yeah, and I would also add to that list, you know, the crisis text line where you can text in and have conversations with someone and part of these warm lines being developed by many organizations where when you're not in crisis, but you want to have someone to talk with and engage, they serve as a resource. Absolutely. Well, huh, that went really fast. Well, that's all we have time for today. I really want to express my gratitude to Matt for his insights and thank all of you listeners for joining us today. The next Coffee and Science webinar will be on May 21st and will focus on accountable health communities and research around the effectiveness of that model. So thank you very much for joining us today. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.